just got back from almost a month of touring overseas, mostly UK stuff there, and had a great tour. I want to thank everybody that came out to the shows. I want to thank everybody that came up to me and said that they enjoy this show. There were so many people, and people say such nice things to me. I appreciate the emails that people send me. It's a beautiful thing to wake up to in the morning and just have somebody saying something nice to you, and I truly appreciate that. Uh, I really love being on the road, and I love uh, touring and meeting people, but I love being at home also. My first night home, I slept 13 hours. I was very tired, and uh, I'm doing my best just to sit around and catch up with all the things that I need to do day to day, but I want you to know I truly appreciate you guys coming out and saying hey, shaking hands, and all that stuff. I'm really happy to be home. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. I've decided to fly solo today. You know, I talk to a lot of folks and tell a lot of different stories. And one story that comes up every now and then is about Elvis meeting Nixon. And it's been talked about, but I'm surprised how many people have never heard of this story. You know, when we're just I'm hanging out and we're telling stories... Sometimes uh, this comes up, and I just meet so many people who have never heard about this. So I figured I would fly solo today and put this story out there. I think you guys will enjoy it. It's one of the stranger moments in American history, a moment of absurdity that I enjoy quite a bit, and uh, it brings a smile to my face every time I think about it. So sit back and enjoy as I tell you about the time Elvis Presley met Richard Nixon. Our story begins in Memphis, Tennessee, December 1970. Elvis had just gotten into a big fight with his father, Vernon, and his wife, Priscilla, and they were concerned that he'd spent way too much money on Christmas presents. He'd been spending money hand over fist, just out of control. They got into a big argument. Elvis had spent over $100,000. He'd bought 32 guns and 10 Mercedes-Benz cars that he'd given to people as presents. You know, Elvis had been at the top of the world, and everybody in his inner circle would call him king instead of Elvis. And he was used to just people, you know, doing what he wanted. He got what he wanted, so he wasn't used to being called out on by his father and his wife and having this argument. And he got mad. And he said, I don't need this. So he took off to the Memphis airport. And the only thing he had on him was a credit card, had no money. And he caught the first flight going anywhere. And that just happened to be Washington, D.C. He flew to Washington. 
I should say right here that Elvis always had somebody taking care of him. There was always a big entourage around him that would do everything for him. So he'd never checked into a hotel before. You know, he'd never booked a flight. There's basic things that all of us have to do. Elvis never had to deal with. So he's got to Washington, D.C., and he checked himself into a hotel and probably realized that he was out on a limb and wasn't feeling very comfortable with it. So the next day, he went back to the airport and he booked a flight to Los Angeles. And it stopped over in Dallas. And when he was in Dallas, he made a phone call to his buddy Jerry Schilling, who was an old dear friend and a member of the Memphis Mafia, which was his inner circle. He knew he could count on him. It's 1.30 in the morning, and he asked him, will you meet me at the airport in Los Angeles and pick me up? And Jerry agreed to do that. So Elvis's plane lands at 3 a.m. in Los Angeles, and Jerry Schilling is there waiting with a limo to pick him up. And they drive him back to Elvis's mansion. The two of them sit and talk for a little bit, and then Elvis went ahead and went to bed, sleep it off. When they wake up, they get into a conversation, and Elvis starts telling Jerry Schilling what had been going on and about the argument and flying to Washington, D.C. And as he gets to talking, Jerry Schilling starts to realize that nobody has any idea where Elvis is. His family has no idea, and they're probably worried sick. And uh, Elvis didn't seem to care. He was still mad about it. But he tells Schilling, he says, I want to fly to, I'm going to fly today to, to Washington, D.C., and I want you to go with me. And Schilling didn't want to go at first, so they went back and forth a little bit. And the only way that Schilling would agree to go is that if Elvis would allow him to call back to Graceland and let them know that Elvis is all right and uh, that he was with him and taking care of him. And Elvis agrees to that. Elvis also had Schilling call Elvis's longtime friend and bodyguard, Sonny West, in Memphis and have him fly from Memphis and meet them in Washington, D.C., so he would be there when they landed. So they don't have any money at all. There's no money. He just has that credit card. So on the way to the airport, they stop off at a Hilton hotel in Beverly Hills and get them to cash a check for $500. So they have $500 cash, and they go to the airport, and they get checked in, and they start to get on the flight, and Elvis has three guns on him, and the, the stewardess won't let him onto the flight. She says, sir, you cannot bring those, you know, <laughs> you're not allowed to bring guns on a flight. And Elvis gets mad and starts arguing and throwing a little bit of a fit. And the stewardess says, no, we can't let you do that. And he turns off and he starts walking away mad. The captain of the plane sees that it's Elvis. and He runs outside and he starts apologizing. I'm sorry, King. I'm sorry. It's all right. You can bring your guns on. So the captain brings him onto the flight with his guns. And, and they take off. And as they're flying to Washington, D.C., Elvis starts talking to a few people around him. And he sees that there's a, you know, there's a kid coming back from Vietnam. And he's coming back for Christmas to visit his family before he has to go back to the war. And he's telling Elvis what it's like. And um, you know, Elvis really gets touched by him. And, uh, and he says, I want you to be able to buy some presents for your family you know, so you guys have a great Christmas. So he gives the kid the $500 that they have. It's all the money that they have on him at all, and he gives it to this uh, this kid who's returning from the war. 
Also on that flight to Washington, D.C. was Senator George Murphy from California. And he was one time president of the Screen Actors Guild. And Elvis went back and they had a conversation, which was probably a pretty good one. I would have liked to have overheard that. But Elvis went back and sat down and he was just, I'm sure he was had his head full of a lot of thoughts. He was really quiet and didn't talk to anybody for quite a while. So he asked the stewardess, do you have any airline stationery? And she said, yes, we do. And she brought him back a few pieces of paper. And Elvis wrote a letter, a handwritten letter on American Airlines stationery that I would like to read for you right now. And please forgive me if I just happen to not be able to control myself and I throw in a few comments along the way. I'll try my best not to. But the letter goes like this. Dear Mr. President, first I would like to introduce myself. I am Elvis Presley, and I admire you, and I have great respect for your office. I talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concerns for our country. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, Black Panthers, etc. do not consider me as their enemy, or as they call it, the establishment. I call it America, and I love it, sir. I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out. So Elvis is telling the president right now that uh, the Black Panthers dig him, the hippies dig him, and he can get inside. Forgive me there. I have no concerns or motives other than helping the country out. So I wish not to be given a title or an appointment position. I can and will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large, and I will help out by doing it my way through communications with people of all ages. First and foremost, I'm an entertainer. But all I need is the federal credentials. I'm on a plane with Senator George Murphy, and we have been discussing the problems that our country is faced with. Sir, I'm staying at the Washington Hotel, room 505, 506, and 507. I have two men who work with me by the name of Jerry Schilling and Sonny West. I'm registered under the name of John Burroughs. I'll be here for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent. I've done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I am right in the middle of the whole thing. I can and will do the most good. I love the idea of Elvis thinking that he's an expert on communist brainwashing techniques, but he has been in the music industry, so who knows? I'm glad to help as long as it's kept very private. You can have your staff or whomever call me anytime today, tonight, or tomorrow, I was nominated this coming year one of America's 10 most outstanding young men. That will be in January 18 in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. I'm sending you a short autobiography about myself so you can better understand this approach. I would love to meet you just to say hello if you're not too busy. Respectfully, Elvis Presley. P.S. I believe that you, sir, were one of the top 10 outstanding men of America also. I have a personal gift for you, which I would like to present to you, and you can accept it or I will keep it for you until you can take it. I should probably throw in right here that, that Elvis collected badges. When he would go on tour, whatever town he stopped in or whatever city he played, the local police department would give him a badge and... Um, make him a, you know, they would deputize him, make him an honorary member of the police force. And he loved these badges. He loved collecting them. And he carried them around in a briefcase wherever he went. 
and he would show them to people. You know, he was really proud of them. He had it in his mind that he wanted to become a narcotics officer so he could get the badge. He showed this letter that he'd just written to Jerry Schilling while they were on the plane. He said, what do you think about this? And he read it and was like, well, there's some grammatical errors or whatever, but it seemed like it was heartfelt. And Elvis tells Schilling, you know, we're going to the White House when we land in Washington. So for the first time, Schilling starts to understand what this is all about. They land in Washington, D.C., and this was an overnight flight. They just landed. Sonny West has just arrived from Memphis and uh, picks them up there at the airport in a limousine. And Elvis says, we're going to the White House right now. They arrive at the gates of the White House at 6.30 a.m. Elvis steps out of the limousine, walks up, and says, I want to see the president. The people there were kind of a little bit taken back. This, is this Elvis Presley? <laughs> he hands them the letter. and They say, sir, we can't let you in just right now. He says, I have a present that I want to give the president, and it's very important that I see him immediately. They said, well, sir, we'll take your information down. If you just go back to your hotel, we'll call you when it's possible. So as a sidebar, Jerry Schilling tells this funny story about how Elvis, there in Washington, D.C., stops off at a donut shop in a really bad part of town. And Elvis is wearing big gold and diamond rings and necklaces, just a lot of very expensive jewelry. There's a lot of rough people hanging around. And as he's walking in, there's some folks that walk up and start saying, that's some nice jewelry you got there. That's, that's some really nice jewelry. And Elvis hikes up the the leg of his pants, which reveals a, a gun stuck in his boot. And he smiles and says, yeah, and I aim to keep it. And they all started laughing and high-fiving back and forth with Elvis. And he goes in and gets his donuts, and, and they're on their way back to the hotel room. But meanwhile, back at the White House, Elvis's letter finally makes its way to one of Nixon's top aides, Bud Crow. And Bud Crow is a big Elvis fan, really big Elvis fan. And he reads the letter, and he's convinced that this is a practical joke of some sort. There's no way Elvis has shown up here. It turns out the Nixon White House was full of practical jokers, and they were always playing jokes on each other back and forth. So he was kind of convinced that this was a practical joke that was being played on him. But he went ahead and he went along with it. So they go ahead and they set up this meeting, and... Part of meeting with the president is his aides will try to write out a letter with some bullet points explaining what this meeting is about, what you're going to talk about, why it's even taking place in the first place. There's some official White House documents that I would like to read from that Bud Crow put together for Richard Nixon to read to understand what this was, why this meeting was taking place. It says, attached you will find a letter to the president from Elvis Presley As you are aware, Presley showed up here this morning and has requested an appointment with the president. He states that he knows the president is very busy, but he would just like to say hello and present the president with a gift. As you are well aware, Presley was voted one of the 10 outstanding young men for next year, and this was based upon his work in the field of drugs. That's funny. I guess we all know that Elvis knew a lot about drugs. The thrust of Presley's letter is that he wants to become a, quote, federal agent at large to work against the drug problem by communicating with people of all ages. 
He says that he is not a member of the establishment and the drug culture types, the hippie elements, the SDS, and the Black Panthers are people with whom he can communicate since he's not part of the establishment. Just before the meeting took place, the Secret Service stopped Elvis and wouldn't let him carry a gun into the Oval Office. They said, we have rules against that. Bud Crow kind of stopped and, you know, he's like, yeah, we can't allow that. You know, no one brings a gun into the Oval Office to visit the president. Elvis had brought this uh, World War II revolver, and it's in a display case, and there's a lot of bullets in the display case also, some very fancy gun that he wants to give to the president. So he gives it to the Secret Service. So they tell Jerry Schilling and Sonny West that they're going to have to wait outside the Oval Office, that Elvis will have to walk in, just him and Bud Crow. So to set the scene, it's December 21st, 1970. The war is raging in Vietnam. The images are showing up on TV, and President Nixon is becoming very unpopular very quickly. He's got a lot of things on his plate. At the same time, the White House and Congress are working together to establish the EPA, to establish OSHA. He's laying the groundwork at this moment to become the very first American president to ever visit China, which is a huge deal. And he's taking part in a lot of shenanigans that are going to get him in trouble later on. Nixon's a very serious man with some very serious problems on his mind. He's got much better things to worry about than meeting with Elvis. He understands who Elvis is, but he doesn't know that much about Elvis. He prefers listening to Rachmaninoff. He's a very serious man with some very serious problems that he needs to deal with. In walks Elvis Presley, you know, the king of rock and roll. He's dressed in a purple velvet suit, purple velvet pants. He's got this jacket that's more of a cape than a jacket, purple velvet. He's wearing the amber sunglasses, the trademark Elvis sunglasses that we've seen a million times. And he's got this huge gold belt buckle. I mean, a huge one. It looks as big as, you know, it's bigger than any cowboy belt buckle. And it looks like something that Ric Flair would strut to the ring, you know, before his championship match wearing. He'd be proud to wear that. You can only imagine what Nixon would be thinking when Elvis walks in the room. Bud Crow says that Elvis was a little bit taken taken back when he walked into the Oval Office and just kind of stared around a little bit, taking it all in. But they started to warm up and started talking. And this is just a few months before Nixon had installed his taping system, you know, the system that would get him in trouble much later. But um, it would be so beautiful if there was tape of Elvis and Nixon talking in the White House that would be available. But that does not exist. All that exists is uh, Bud Crow's memory, Jerry Schilling's memory, Sonny West's memory, and there's a memorandum where Bud Crow took notes and wrote about what happened. Crow says that Elvis opened up his briefcase with all of his law enforcement badges and set it on the president's desk and started showing him his collection of badges. And Nixon was mildly interested in it. You know, he's looking at it like someone's family album. You can imagine what that would be like. I'd like to read Bud Crow's memorandum of the notes that he took during this meeting. And this is in the National Archive. This was a official White House document that's been declassified. But it says, The meeting opened with pictures taken of the president and Elvis Presley. 
Presley immediately began showing the president his law enforcement paraphernalia, including badges from police departments in California, Colorado, and Tennessee. Presley indicated that he had been playing Las Vegas, and the president indicated that he was aware of how difficult it is to perform in Las Vegas. I guess neither of them have played in Kokomo, Indiana. The president mentioned that he thought Presley could reach young people, and it was important for Presley to retain his credibility. Presley responded that he did his thing by just singing. He said he couldn't get to the kids if he made a speech from the stage, that he had to reach them in his own way. The president nodded in agreement. Presley indicated that he thought the Beatles had been a real force for anti-American spirit. He said that the Beatles came to this country, made their money, and then returned to England where they promoted an anti-American theme. The president nodded in agreement and expressed some surprise. I can only imagine what Nixon thought when he heard that, because at that very moment, he had J. Edgar Hoover doing everything he could to uncover some dirt on John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And, uh, you know, the Beatles were in his sights. And I can only imagine what that felt like to, you know, the Beatles to hear that years later when this came out, since they idolized Elvis. But back to, back to the transcript. The president then indicated that those who use drugs are also those in the vanguard of anti-American protest. Violence, drug usage, dissent, protest all seem to merge in generally the same group of young people. Presley indicated to the president in a very emotional manner that he was on your side. Presley kept repeating that he wanted to be helpful, that he wanted to restore some respect for the flag which was being lost. He mentioned that he was just a poor boy from Tennessee who'd gotten a lot from his country, which in some way he wanted to repay. He also mentioned that he is studying communist brainwashing and drug culture for over 10 years. I bet you were, Elvis. He mentioned that he knew a lot about this and was accepted by the hippies. He said he could go right into a group of young people or hippies and be accepted, which he felt could be helpful to him in his drug drive. The president indicated again his concern that Presley retain his credibility. At the conclusion of the meeting, Presley again told the president how much he supported him, and then in a surprising, spontaneous gesture, put his arm around the president and hugged him. No one hugged Richard Nixon. Crow would later say that that surprised everybody and took the president off guard. In going out, Presley asked the president if he would see his two associates. The president agreed and they came over and shook hands with the president briefly. After this meeting, the president thanked them for their efforts and again mentioned his concern for Presley's credibility. That was the official memorandum of what happened that day at the White House from Bud Craig. I like the part of the story where Elvis, once he'd gotten everything that he wanted, he remembered his friends waiting outside and asked Nixon if it was all right if he brought them in really quickly so they could meet the president. And they came in, and Nixon, I guess, would keep in his desk drawer, he would keep, um, you know, just gifts that he would give people that came in, everything from, you know, just a White House golf ball up to really expensive cufflinks. And he said, well, maybe I should give you guys a little gift for visiting, meaning giving that to Sonny West and Jerry Schilling. So he walked behind his desk and Elvis followed him behind his desk, and the Secret Service never even went back there. Everybody kind of gasped a little bit, but Elvis was so confident, he walked right back there and started looking through the drawer with Nixon. And Nixon pulled out 
these really nice gold cufflinks and gave them to Sonny West and Jerry Schilling. And then Elvis, you know, being even more thoughtful, said, well, Mr. President, you do realize these men have wives also. So Nixon dug in that drawer and he found these really nice brooches that he gave West and Schilling to give to their wives. And they were all escorted out. And after the meeting, the Secret Service gave Nixon the pistols that Elvis had brought as a present. Some sort of a World War II commemorative pistol, supposedly really nice, engraved with engraved bullets. And Nixon, in return, gave Elvis the badge that he'd wanted. It was an official Bureau of Narcotics badge. I've heard people say, I don't know how true it is, but if you have that badge, you could show it to a pilot on an airline and have them ground that flight, have them land somewhere in mid-flight. You had that kind of power. Thankfully, Elvis never used it. He probably just showed it to his friends and was proud of it. I personally believe that Elvis and Nixon both existed way outside of any reality that any of us could understand. Um, Possible they were delusional, but we'll just say that their day-to-day lives, just way outside of uh, anything that at least I could could grasp. And uh, but I do like the idea of thinking of this you know, kid who was born poor in Tupelo and was raised in West Memphis with two friends that he grew up with in West Memphis there, Jerry Schilling and Sonny West. You know, they were all very poor in a very bad part of, of Memphis. If you've seen the movie Hustle and Flow, that's where Elvis and Schilling and West grew up. And to think that they'd one day visit the White House, and even the president that they were visiting grew up very poor in California. His family were ranchers. They were Quakers, and their ranch failed, and they had some hard times at a young age. So you have people that overcame all of that and became, you know, maybe the two most recognizable people in the world at that time, but definitely two of the most recognizable people. But Elvis had requested that that particular meeting, you know, stay silent, that they, you know, they keep it a secret. They thought he could be most effective if no one knew that that took place. So for 13 months, it was quiet and somehow it leaked out and a reporter wrote about it. And uh, the headline was Elvis Presley receives narcotics badge, but nobody really cared. It didn't get much attention. And then in 1988, the National Archives started selling photographs that White House photographer Ollie Atkins had taken on that day, and there's these wonderful photographs. They immediately got 8,000 requests for them. And to this day, the most requested document from the National Archives, it's not the Declaration of Independence. It's not a picture of President Lincoln. It's not the Constitution. It's the picture of Elvis Presley and Richard Nixon shaking hands and smiling to the camera there in the Oval Office. And I have to admit, I'm not the kind of person who puts up pictures of famous people or political leaders in my house, but for the last 25 years, the only photo I've had of anybody that's not in my family or my close friends, I have a picture of Nixon and Elvis shaking hands in the White House on December 21st, 1970. It's sitting on a bookshelf in my living room, and it's confused so many people as they've walked in. (laughs) 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to encourage you to go to the National Archives and dig around a little bit. You'll find a lot of great things there, and you just might find a fun picture of Nixon and Elvis. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.